Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Hey man, yeah, I'm good. I obviously wasn't here last week and I was, you know, off uh, watching the Super Bowl and I really Mm. wish I wasn't because that (laughs) was fucking awful. I didn't think, I did not think that watching Maroon 5 would be the highlight of the game. And that that says it all about the quality of the lowest scoring Super Bowl in Super Bowl history, the most kind of grimly predictable result, and uh, in you know if if you know if this is not too inside baseball, the excitement that everyone in the stadium and the commentary box and the studios around the world had when the record for the longest punt in a Super Bowl was broken, <laughs> and when the commentators in the third quarter said this game is really boring. <laughs> Uh, you know you're in for a loser. And I watch it with my friends every year. We have done for uh, the best part of you know a decade and a half now. And, you know, really it's not about the game. We kind of, we don't see each other as often as we should because, you know, we're adults and it's boring. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's a nice chance to get together. But, you know, we do watch the game. But this year was the first year in, yeah, a decade and a half that none of us have made it to the end <laughs> mm. uh, because it was like watching shit dry. It was awful. Yeah, when they did make the record-breaking punt and, like, they said, oh, my God, you know, this is the longest uh, punt in Super Bowl history. And one of the commentators said, like, well, 27 yards of it was after the bounce. I was like, don't take this from me. (laughs) It's all we have. (laughs) This is the only (laughs) exciting thing that's happened in this whole godforsaken game. Yeah, it was was pretty dispiriting. You and I were talking beforehand and we both stopped watching it at the exact same moment which is when the Patriots got a interception late in the third quarter and it was like yeah there's probably no way the Rams are coming back from this and uh, it seems like uh, we could probably spend our time better yours by going to sleep me by uh, driving for an hour to get home because I was uh, visiting my parents for the weekend and I was watching the game with my dad and yeah there was a, there was a sort of a sort of grim determination uh for me at a certain point of just being like i'm just gonna watch this game until <laughs> until it finishes until it's clear that one side is gonna win because i i i've made a pact with this thing now it's a baton death march <laughs> of a game <laughs> i'm just gonna sit and endure and i said to you on whatsapp as as it was on like i didn't like that the patriots won but i'm glad that they had no pleasure doing it <laughs> like, like it was a miserable experience for them as well in kind of grinding their way to another super bowl win mm, yeah and it was like in sports you can have like low scoring things be kind of compelling and have their own tension like you can mm. see like you know a very tense close nil nil draw in a game of football or like a pitcher's yeah. duel in baseball they can be interesting and you know have their own kind of fluctuations or when nothing looks to be happening something really is happening but this was there was just nothing happening like the only people who would get any joy from this are like defensive coordinators on NFL teams mm. who would you know say things like that was a very well executed plan and yeah. not take any kind of joy from playing what is essentially a game. Mm. It was, yeah, it was just ghastly. And yeah, like, I mean, the halftime show, you know, this is an entertainment podcast, kind of Maroon 5 just tried to 
fool everyone into thinking they were like some kind of stadium rock band. Um, mm-hmm. uh, he took his shirt off and carried a guitar. He he, he did play played a guitar solo at some point, as if that would impress us. And then mm. Big Boy turned up, and I was even more disappointed. And I was like, "Do I yeah. think more of Maroon Five or less of Outcast? <laughs> I'm not sure." And then there was a SpongeBob SquarePants thing in the middle, and I didn't really understand that because I've never really seen that show. But I understand there's some connection with them and Maroon Five or guests. I'm not sure. But yeah, the whole thing was just, it was so poor. It was, it was, it was, I thought that the Super Bowl where Coldplay played the halftime show was the blandest thing I'd ever seen. (laughs) But this, I mean, this made that look like a fucking Rammstein concert. (laughs) Yeah, there is such a disconnect between the image that you see, like if you, you see the photos of, uh, Adam Levine out there and like he's shirtless he's all tattooed up he's and, and, and like the the pillars of flame are going up behind him and you're like oh man this guy must be the front man of uh you know some sort of real kind of like aggressive hardcore thing and then like the music is like she will be loved. <laughs> it's like it's just, you know it's like there is nothing to it to to kind of excite or interest at all it's just so so tedious and I, I did find it very funny watching it being like oh they're only playing songs from songs from jane kind of seeming to for a while at least you know kind of seeming to admit yeah that's the one album that people seem to kind of like <laughs> and then at one point be like yeah i'm just gonna we're also gonna play some of the songs from like last year that everyone hates like all the stuff that just really annoys everyone mm, yeah i mean you should guess. I guess you should be proud of doing the uh, the the Super Bowl halftime show, but like in a year where literally everyone else has said they don't want to do it out of a, mm. kind of like a political boycott, I wouldn't have. I'd have just phoned it in, and it should have been like the Oscars. There should have been no halftime act. Mm. Yeah, or like that one from the eighties, which you can find on YouTube, or at least clips of, where it was like George Burns and like you know, kind of weird old comedy stars, just kind of like waltzing, walking out for parade. Let's get some of that again. Let's get, <laughs> let's get Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner to come on and do like the te- the thousand year old man routine. <laughs> I think that'd be fun. Yeah, it would be more fun than the game. Yes. So that's enough sport short talk for the year. Yeah, too much sport. We're not a sports podcast. No, we're about art. Mm. and movies and such and uh, in terms of movies and such and people uh, evaluating art for what it's worth the BAFTAs were held tonight this is hot off the presses the BAFTAs just occurred and uh, I think well I say just occurred I think they just aired in the UK but everyone already knew the um, the winners like two hours before because they don't show them live for some reason mm. and so, so people have known the winners for ages at this point but uh, it was I think probably indicative of some of the stuff we're going to see in the Oscars in uh, a week's time, which is that Roma did very well, won Best Picture and Best Director, which uh, seems to have arisen as the front runner at this point. Certainly seems to be the the movie that people seem most amenable to and hasn't been consumed by easily spottable controversy. Mm-hmm. But unlike previous awards shows uh the, the favorite did very very well overall partly because there is a best british film category so obviously it had a very good shot there which it won but it also won best supporting actress for rachel vice which is probably not going to happen at the oscars i think that's probably going to go to um regina king but mm-hmm. uh, that was very nice to see she's great in the favorite as is olivia coleman who won best actress which is always good to see people recognizing what a brilliant actress olivia coleman is and i would love to see her win the oscar uh, next week but uh, i'm not sure if if that's going to happen and it, it also kind of cleaned up in the technical 
aspects in terms of production design and makeup and hair, which kind of a nice show of support for a, a an incredibly distinctive uh, and uh, British movie. Uh, so I think that's that's kind of nice to see, even if some of the kind of bigger narratives of the award season, uh, such as Roma doing very well or Green Book kind of for some reason being liked mm. has kind of like has continued it's quite nice to see that spike lee won for or spike lee and his collaborators won a best adapted screenplay for black Klansman, which is pro- maybe not be predictive of what's going to happen next week but i think that would be a nice thing to happen for for him to finally give him the kind of uh, oscars recognition that he's deserved for a very long time if maybe not for the best aspect of Black Klansman, which isn't even like one of his best movies of mm. recent vintage. Yeah, this is his departed year, isn't it, I guess? Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of think that this is probably it for that film, I think, at the awards. Um, yeah. I, I'm not, not 100% sure it's got too strong a case at the Oscars. Maybe, the, maybe screenplay is it's probably his best option, although I would like to see Adam Driver win... Uh, an Oscar just to see him kind of go up there in a fairly bemused fashion because mm. uh, he's the he'll be the one that everyone forgets was nominated uh, this year. But yeah, the, the, it, I mean, Rami Malek winning for Bohemian Rhapsody seems to suggest that that's going to take home the bacon next yeah. week. Uh, although interestingly, this week Brian Singer's name was expunged from the nomination. I don't know if you saw that. I did see that. Yeah, and again, kind of Malik dodged dodged the question. I think last week he had finally broken his silence, I guess, or relative silence about the thing, saying that he didn't have a very nice time working on the film. Mm. No, he didn't have a nice time working with Brian Singer, um, more to the point. But, you know, I guess he hadn't heard all of the (laughs) the, uh, many rumours that we'd heard about uh, Mm -hmm. Brian Singer and just agreed to do the film anyway because awards... Yeah. But yeah, so I mean, I think he's nailed on for that, isn't he? The the best Oscar uh, from everything else. Roma seems to be, yeah, like you say, the one that people are like, well, there's nothing wrong with this one. <laughs> there's mm-hmm. no, there's no one will get upset if we award this. I mean, don't get me wrong, I think it's a wonderful film. Um, it's a very good movie. Really, really lovely film. But it is it, weirdly the black and white film in kind of two languages about you know a kind of like domestic worker in in seventies Mexico it seems to be the safe obvious option this year. Yeah, that is. It's very strange how that seems to have shaken out. But yeah, like just some of like Green Book is just a constant source of kind of derision from everyone like that that movie getting nominated for everything is just getting nothing but score and obviously bohemian rhapsody is like a complete fucking disaster in terms of nominating it and uh anyone who involved with it because all they're gonna get us now is questions about brian singer which they should be but yeah in terms of you know maybe wanting to promote the best of the movies like nominating a very kind of middling biopic directed by someone with credible uh, sexual assault allegations to them probably not the best way to go about promoting hollywood and particularly you know in in kind of aftermath of me too and times up like really really the wrong message to send uh, across the board Mm, yeah here's a question it's hypothetical so enjoy it let's say you're dexter fletcher Right, you personally are Dexter Fletcher. Great. Someone, your agent rings you and mm. says, Dexter, I loved you in Press Gang. <laughs> are you too young for Press Gang? I know I know of Press Gang, but I Ugh. don't th- think it was on the air when I was watching telly. Mm. I'm Dexter Fletcher, so obviously... I'm... <laughs> you remember it well. I remember it very well. 
Dexter Fletcher and Julia Sawala was for British teenage kids. That was the Sam and Diane <laughs> of our of our teenage years. But yeah, you're someone says they're, they're making a film of Bohemian Rhapsody, Dexter, and you're Brian Singer. He, he he's going to get fired mm. because he's uh, you know not a nice guy. Do you want to do it? But you're, do you want to finish directing it? You probably have to reshoot a lot of it. Um, we're not going to put your name on it. And you know, this is the kind of film that wins a lot of awards, and it's being released in a slot that will be, you know, sympathetic to uh, to that kind of campaign. Um, but again, you're not going to be mentioned by anyone mm. uh, whilst doing it. Are you interested? Well, I've, I'm working on this Elton John movie, and I do have all the wigs. So, I mean, <laughs> I'll just load them in the back of my Morris Minor or whatever, and just like drive over. I think he's. Yeah. I think it's probably. I think I don't. I don't know why I decided he was Del Boy, but. <laughs> <laughs> But that kind of that kind of seems to be the vibe. But I, I think for me, the impetus there would be, I guess, just to kind of curry favour with people in positions to help him make other movies. Like mm. I don't know where it's a lot like, of shit though, isn't it? Mm, yeah, but I think like if uh, executives at Fox can be like, well, Fox, you know, if it it's not going to exist in like two years' time, mm. but if movie executives can say, oh, you know, he did us a real solid on that one. He came into a very bad situation and he, you know, kind of rescued that movie and it ended up being quite successful. Then, then we owe him one and, you know, we, we can maybe work with him again in the future. I think that the, the idea of wanting to be like a team player is, is probably like the main reason to do that. And, and I'm, I presume that he must have got paid reasonably well to step in because that's not the sort of gig that you would just kind of like hop into last minute unless there's some decent recompense for doing so. So, mm. like, me personally, I would not want to be associated with it at all, but I can definitely understand why someone would decide they were going to do it. Mm. Like, there, there, there are upsides to it, regardless of the final product. Mm. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, but yeah, that's just uh, that's just me as Dexter Fletcher. Mm. Next week's podcast <laughs> will be other people. Yeah. <laughs> we'll answer hypothetical questions as... Terence Malick. Yeah. Uh, oh, great. I'll finally be able to ask you what it is that you find so good about Zoolander. I mean, I love Zoolander <laughs> as well, but I really want to know what Terence Malick in particular finds <laughs> finds in, in Zoolander. Or, or what he thought for the sequel. Because hmm. uh, it'd, be, it'd be even stranger if you found out that he was like the world's biggest Zoolander 2 fan. I don't think anyone's that, are they? No, even Ben Stiller's probably wiped it from his CV at this point. Hmm. In uh, kind of related news in terms of film directors having kind of contentious relationships with their studio over uh, credible accusations of of wrongdoing, Woody Allen is suing Amazon for, I believe, $68 million, I think it was, the the number that Mm. he's suing them for, for breach of contract over the fact that they are not planning to release... The, the last movie that he made for them, which is called A Rainy Day in New York, he signed a four-picture deal for them. I think this was the third of the four, but mm-hmm. in the light of the renewed kind of scrutiny on the accusations that have been made for, against him, they have basically decided, we really don't want to do this. We don't want to put out your stuff and just enjoy, like, countless bad press for you know another another year or another two years however many more films he was due to make for them and his legal team have made the argument that oh you can't say that 
uh, that he's in breach of contract now because of these accusations kind of coming up again because these accusations have been out in the world for like 25 years and you knew about them before you signed us which again kind of touches on like the the rami malik and the, the 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 anyone involved in bohemian rhapsody thing about you know these allegations are out there for a very long time how could you not have heard them like it's a kind of it's a very weird argument to make mm. in the sense of like saying hey you knew this guy was maybe possibly a truly awful devious person for a very long time and you still agreed to work with him what's changed uh but it's a very strange argument to make but also it's one way like yeah, they're kind of right. <laughs> like, it does feel like, like, uh, Amazon, you know, the Amazon's counterclaim to that is like, well, that there's kind of been this, the, the, the accusations have kind of like risen up again and casts his work in a different light to what it was previously and things like that. But like, it, their argument feels like a lot flimsier in view of like Woody Allen's lawyers making what actually kind of feels like the common sense argument which is like yeah we all knew this anyway like why would you agree to make this multi-picture deal with him if you knew all of this stuff mm, yeah yeah I'm, i kind of didn't realize that his he'd made a film last year with justin timberlake and kate winslet that i didn't even realize existed mm, um yeah uh i think over here it got dumped onto to uh now tv i think uh i think mm. it might have probably seen a cinema somewhere but i didn't even know it popped up and uh, that it was a thing until it popped up in my queue but i mean it's it's such a weird legal case to be watching like a you know a giant multi-billion dollar conglomerate slugging it out with someone who's deeply unlikable yeah and like what the wrong side is kind of right <laughs> but the other side can probably afford to lose the money. Mm. I don't know. They'll probably just like, you know, settle out of court. And I don't think Woody Allen's going to have much trouble funding his films in the future because he gets so much funding from Europe, I guess. Yeah, it it does make me wonder if he will ever put out a movie again. Like, I guess he could get the funding, but at this point, like, who wants to watch them? (laughs) Who wants to... Mm. I mean, clearly some people do because, like, some people wanted to see... You know, like some people were paying hundreds of dollars to buy screeners of that Louis C.K. movie from a couple of years ago that ended up getting its release completely cancelled. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure there are like diehard Woody Allen fans who will be like, yeah, sure. Like, I mean, we, like they'll probably make the same argument. Like, we've known all of this stuff for years and years and years. And, you know, we don't believe we don't believe her or we don't think this is credible or whatever. You know, like there, there, there's people out there who will rationalize it forever and again like you know the people who go to see louis ck's stand-up still and there was a there was an article printed a few weeks ago where someone spoke to a bunch of people outside of a louis ck gig and uh it was very telling that one of the discussions the the reporter was talking to someone and they said well you know it's just he said she she said and then they said well actually he admitted to it all and then Mm. they said like well, I still think you should get another chance. I mean, like, it's very, it's very interesting to think. Oh, people will come up with any rationality to uh, not make hard choices about the art that they uh, enjoy. And I'm not kind of like speaking to, to this from some kind of great like moral plane. Like, I watched Woody Allen movies like way after I started hearing like things about him because like I uh, basically just tried not to think about them. I think that's probably what a lot of people do. And at a certain point, for me, it was like, yeah, I really can't ignore these accusations that are out there anymore i can't i can't support this guy who is by all accounts uh by well by some accounts and credible accounts a, 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 a monster 
Mm. Uh, I definitely, I can definitely understand why people would be just kind of like, yeah, I'm just going to watch it. But it, it kind of feels like at this point, the number of people who are willing to maybe make that jump is is probably dwindling quite a bit because the like you say that movie he did with Justin Timberlake and Kate Winslet, which I can't even remember the name, Wonder Wheel. Wonder Wheel. It was one of the 17 movies with Wonder in the title that came out in 2017. Wonder mm. Wheel like was just a complete flop in the US and it's the theatrical release like it did nothing at all mm. and like I can't imagine that anyone will look at that and think yeah it's worth taking a punt on him like another time mm. yeah is it like, anyway is it like you know kind of french like people love his films so he always just his films will always get released in france um, maybe which is is where roman plansky lives uh <laughs> I'm just I'm just saying those two things might be connected. And where seemingly every French actress at one point will say something like, oh, Harvey Weinstein's been through enough. Or, you know, times that really has gone too far. And it's, I, I never know if it's like a translation issue or something, but uh, or it's like some nuance is not being conveyed there. But it always seems to be like older French creatives who are like really willing to be uh, to be the ones to say, Oh no! All of this, you know, this is uh, all fuss over nothing, uh, which mm. may, <laughs> doesn't doesn't necessarily reflect well on sexual mores in France. But mm. then again, neither did Pepe Le Pew. So uh, <laughs> this is a long tradition, yeah. storied. <laughs> uh, incredibly sad news broke just the other day, which uh, got an audible "oh fuck off" from me as I was just scrolling from my Twitter feed and Reddit, which was the death of Albert Finney, mm. who was just uh, i think one of the one of the greatest british actors ever one of the greatest film actors ever like he was just a, a wonderful incendiary talent he was someone who pushed himself pretty much towards the very end of his career you know if you look at him in something like before the devil knows you're dead which was one of the the last movies that he made uh and uh, you know there's kind of a real sense of him as someone who's really in love with with acting and being on screen but even you know the the movies did early in his career all of the angry young man stuff uh like saturday night sunday morning that stuff still feels like very vibrant and alive it still feels incredibly resonant mm -hmm. uh in a way that the older performances and older acting styles don't necessarily continue to do and yeah even though he had kind of slowed down a lot in, in recent years you know he had done a, uh the Born Legacy and Skyfall in 2012. That was pretty much the only thing he had done during the last like 12 years of his life. It still, uh, it still really sucks <laughs> that, mm. that Albert Finney's dead because he was just one of those people who, whenever he appeared on screen, you were like, "Oh, we're in good hands for at least a little while." Mm. I think if you grew up watching films in the 90s, you would probably have discovered uh, Albert Finney in something like Miller's Crossing. Mm. in which he would appear and then you would just assume that he had been a movie star forever. Yeah. And he kind of carried that air of of kind of uh, authority and, like you say, the idea that, you know, you're in safe hands all the time. He was multi-nominated for Oscars, I think. He'd, he'd been nominated kind of four or five times, I think. Yeah. Um, but never actually won. But, you know, one of those guys you look back and think, well, he, he kind of just made films as diverse as, like you say, Saturday night and Sunday morning, which, you know, is kind of like the nearest the British will get to 
Brando and on the waterfront, I guess. Mm, yeah. And then something like, you know, Tom Jones is a big, you know, Hollywood movie that's, you know, kind of, you know, lauded with awards. But then he's, you know, he's in Annie um, <laughs> and, you know, kind of turns up as that guy in Aaron Brockovich. And is he in Traffic as well? I seem to yeah, remember he being is. in Traffic as well. Yeah. Um, and like you say, the, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, which kind of reunited him with Sidney Lumet, uh, for which he, you know, he played uh, Poirot. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in Murder in the Orient Express, yeah, like I say, it's you know super sad that that someone like that has kind of left us. And you think about kind of eras ending, and you know he was one of those rare breeds of you know working class northern actors who mm. you know made his way up through theatre, and uh, I think he was a graduate from RADA. Yeah. But, you know, just a lad from, like, Lancashire somewhere. Um, and, yeah, just kind of works his way out to be, like, one of, like, the world's most respected actors is, you know, you're really, really sad to see him gone. Mm. But uh, as with anyone who lives to kind of a fairly ripe old age, he was 82, I believe, when he mm. when he passed. Yeah. You know, you can you can look at the, the breadth, like you say, the breadth and the diversity of his work, and you can just appreciate what a tremendous talent he was, like... He he really did kind of leave it all out there for people to enjoy, and you know, like it's it's interesting because he did so much stuff, like trying to th- th- talking to people about you know what they think of as like their quintessential Albert Finney role. Like uh, I definitely saw a lot of people immediately after he passed away, a lot of people talking about his performance as Scrooge mm. in the early seventies. I think like uh, that's often cited as one of like the real definitive ones. Uh, and like mm-hmm. like you said, like for me, it's always uh, Miller's Crossing. Like that's always what I think of as like maybe not the definitive Albert Finney performance, but when someone says Albert Finney, I think of him, you know, having kind of like terse conversations with Gabriel Byrne in his office and machine gunning people to death uh, to the the plaintive strains of Danny Boy, and uh, you know that's that's a, a great legacy to leave. <laughs> the image of him just like strolling out of his house just like destroying people <laughs> in a dressing gown while this house is engulfed in flames it's a really arresting image mm. and finally this week in terms of news uh, it was announced by hbo that the deadwood movie which people have uh, known for a while is in production you know people have been posting pictures and uh you know as is as is the time now you know people uh, posting instagram stories and things from the set which is uh, very cool but uh they they Uh, Finally announced roughly when it was going to air, which is in the spring, which, uh, you know, is not a specific release date, but it's still very exciting and feels kind of tantalizingly close considering how we've been waiting. I I don't want to speak for you, but certainly I have been like eagerly anticipating some resolution to the Deadwood story for the better part of actually even more than a decade at this point. And it, always seems it always seemed to be something that kind of seemed on the edge of happening and then it would just like fall apart and then you would hear about like some cast member who had passed away and thinking well now that powers booth is gone there's no way they could do it and then when they announced that it was finally finally happening after all this time uh, it kind of seemed too good to be true and this still feels like something that i can't believe is actually going to happen yeah but it also seems weird that it seems to be happening so quickly Yes. Because, um, yeah, the, that time frame doesn't leave a lot of room, uh, given that they were kind of shooting it relatively recently. But, I mean, I'm excited to get it in my eyeballs quicker. I don't want to rush it, which is weird, yeah. given how long they've taken. But, yeah, it's... I, I mean, to be honest, 
even though I see pictures from the set, I get official announcements from HBO. I'm still not going to believe that it's real until I've seen it, until the credits have rolled. Hmm. Yeah, I had that when I think it was Brad Dourif's daughter maybe posted a picture of him. They were like driving to the set mm-hmm. and he was all made up like Doc and everything like that. Or or at the very least, he'd grown his hair out for the role and he looked like really like him, even though it was a modern setting. And part of me was like, wow, I can't believe that's happening. Part of me is like, they're just fucking with us. This isn't going to happen. <laughs> like everyone's so they've just kind of bought a suit for Timothy Oliphant and he's just kind of grown his mustache out for a laugh. And this isn't a thing that's actually going to happen. But yeah, I'm just I'm just tremendously excited slash worried about it. Like there's so much expectation put on something that I've been anticipating for like 12 or 13 years at this point that you kind of worry that it can't live up to it. And it may it may still very well turn out to be like really, really good. And uh, at the very least, you'll get to see all of those actors kind of donning their old costumes again. And uh, you get to see people try to explain how exactly soul star is so fucked up now <laughs> because of all of the cast john hawks is probably the one who's grown most haggard over the years because mm. i i always think of him in like the early seasons you know he's this like fresh-faced guy who's just like coming into town with a dream <laughs> and then like you see him in fucking winter's bone <laughs> like a few years later it's like man the world's been rough on you so i look forward to them explaining uh, how exactly he became um the grim specter of death itself Hmm. I think living for nine months in Deadwood mm. might might do it for you, but he looks like he's had a you know several tours of uh, of Deadwood. Oh, they're they're going to reveal that Soulstar invented meth. Yes, uh, after many many years of experimentation on himself. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. You got to get it right. <laughs> uh, and that leads us on to our main topic of discussion this week, which is long delayed sequels. Mm. And this was also inspired by the fact that I went to go and watch the movie Glass the other day, which is, or Glass, uh, just for your uh, poshness, I guess. Yeah. And that is, in some respects, it is a timely sequel because the film that immediately preceded it was Split, which came out in 2017. But it is simultaneously a sequel to that and a much delayed sequel to Unbreakable, the M. Night Shyamalan movie that came out in the year 2000. And... I just found it to be really fascinating, considering that M. Night Shyamalan had talked about how he wanted to do this trilogy with the character of David Dunn for years and years and years. And as his fortunes in Hollywood had their kind of ebbs and flows, I think it's fair to say. And Mm -hmm. as certainly once he just completely torpedoed his working relationship with Disney, uh, that seemed impossible. And it's like a thing that was never, ever going to happen. And then he kind of tricked everyone but the greatest twist of all of releasing split a seemingly completely unrelated movie and then in the final scene being like ah it was an unbreakable sequel all along i already have your money i really enjoyed split i thought it was a it was a really fun crazy thriller but that was that always seemed really weird that oh suddenly we're in the second part of a trilogy having not realized it for like 110 minutes and then suddenly thinking how the hell are you going to reconcile two very different movies uh, in terms of like tone and style and to to kind of create the capstone to this this trilogy uh, and I, I really enjoyed Glass I thought it was really it was a really weird movie and it makes some uh, big and bold choices with the characters that people have 
been excited to see again for for such a long time but it really feels like the sort of movie that could only be made if m night Shyamalan was putting up his own money Mm. and being like i'm going to fucking finish this story (laughs) by hook or by crook and i've managed to kind of string a couple of well-regarded hits under my belt i'm going to kind of really cash it all in on this one and uh, i think that's that's kind of it's largely successful at that in 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 my view but yeah it did get me thinking about instances where not only do people kind of like revisit works and and movies many many years later but when the same creator kind of does it and maybe the reasons why they choose to do that mm. i think we've lived through a bit of a kind of like a bubble of you know that kind of legacy sequel idea mm. where you know your studios they're not daft they realize yeah. the people with the most disposable income right now you know are probably in their kind of like mid 30s early 40s what were mm. they into 20 years ago let's yeah. reboot that and we have had kind of like a real cycle of that with a lot of kind of sequels that i mean obviously some of them are very successful they you know kind of um brought back star wars into people's lives i guess but they kind of directed them at the you know they 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 aped the style of the films that those people at that age group would have liked rather than aping the styles of the prequels or you know the the latter cartoons or things like that mm-hmm. um Jurassic World um uh, something like that and then those are those are the kind of successful ones we've also had a load of ones that have kind of tried to recreate those um the successes of those films and kind of failed miserably uh, things like Independence Day resurgence yeah, which I had forgotten. A, I had forgotten existed, and B, had forgotten was also directed by Roland Emmerich. Like, it seems like that would have been one that anyone would have could have directed. Yeah, um, going back a little further than that, the Tron Legacy movie mm-hmm. was a kind of an attempt to to kind of bring back a film that you know people remembered, but I, you know, I'm not hundred percent sure that they were that fond of. But then, yeah, and we've also seen ones that were critically successful that perhaps weren't financially successful. So things like uh, Blade Runner 2049, uh, which wasn't, you know, obviously cost a lot of money and didn't make a huge amount of money. Uh, Kind of, Mm. I loved the film, but, you know, pretty dense for for kind of, and sold as as kind of an action adventure. Yeah. And also things like Mad Max Fury Road. No one after Mad Max Thunderdome was thinking, oh, we, we definitely need a sequel to to this but then 25 years later here we are mm. and now that looks like mad max fury road is getting a long delayed sequel as well because obviously the film was a huge critical success but you know didn't make a whole lot of money yeah so yeah we seem to have gone through a bit of a kind of a recycling of of some of these things and i mean this is not to mention the ones that were just kind of tawdry and awful like you know dumb and dumber 2 Mm. Um, which came out for reasons unknown. We've got this year, we've got Bad Boys 3. Yeah, which I keep forgetting is happening, but every so often there'll be, an, there'll be a story about it. It's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, it's because it's been happening like every year for like the last 15 years, and I, I'm mm-hmm. not sure what the hold-up is, and I'm not sure where the desire is. It's like Beverly Hills Cop. Everyone's constantly trying to reboot Beverly Hills Cop in some way or another, and it never quite comes together. Mm, the train spotting sequel from last year, I think you know that might get cut a bit of slack because it's based on further written material and 
in that I think the characters had to be their age, but it felt very much of its time in terms of like appearing to cash in on nineties nostalgia. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of uh interesting to kind of and like also the sequels for films that that didn't particularly need sequels and then when we got them we were like yeah they really didn't need sequels like uh zoolander 2 the aforementioned mm-hmm. uh, zoolander 2 terence malick's second favorite movie <laughs> uh and then also uh things like anchorman 2 like oh, yeah. you know i appreciate that you know when they make comedy films they try and kind of sequelize it immediately like try and strike while they earn's hot while it's still funny while it's still got some kind of cultural cachet if they'd have waited 20 years to make a sequel to austin powers people would have been like eh, i don't get it but like you know they churned out three in like five years or something whereas the anchorman 2 and zoolander 2 kind of the, the things that were you know fun about those movies were kind of they'd largely kind of like kind of not they'd left the, the public consciousness i guess mm. uh, austin powers 4 is another one no it's not it keeps getting threatened but there there's kind of i think the last time there was like a serious push for it maybe was or the last time that you really heard mike myers talking about it was probably around the release of inglorious bastards just because he was mm. in it and he was being interviewed about things so we're talking like 10 years since then but like i remember there was a good Eight, eight or nine years there where every time he was being interviewed about some new absolutely abhorrent project that he was working on he would be like yeah we're working on it and it's really going to be like about fathers and sons and things like that and it's just kind of like please don't, <laughs> we don't. <laughs> the last thing any of us want to see is a new austin powers movie <laughs> because the second and third ones really kind of drilled any goodwill out of it Although I think the third one may have been the most successful, which is even weirder because I don't think anyone would say it was their favourite. Even less than that, the people want like a mawkish, you know, kind of soundtrack by, most likely by Cat Stevens, (laughs) father and son, Austin Powers movie. That's the last thing anyone could possibly want. There's also um, like, the only other reason I can think of as why a sequel to be long delayed is sequel to a kind of... film that was successful in the sense that it had like a dedicated cult audience Mm. and the clamoring amongst that cult audience was you know very fervid and you know you know there's there was demand there but just not enough to kind of sequelize it but then through pure kind of force of will someone scraped some money together to make it Mm. so in that instance i'm thinking of something like super troopers 2 yes so, like, you know, Super Troopers is a relatively enjoyable movie from kind of the early 2000s, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And you know, is it the Broken Lizard guys? That's the name of the the comedy troupe. Yeah. Um, who have all gone on to do other things, um, kind of a lot kind of behind the camera. Yeah. Work, working on a lot of, uh, of kind of like TV and stuff. But you know, people had like a, a good deal of affection for, for that story and those characters and... I think it was either last year or the year before, like it, it just dropped out of somewhere uh, that they'd, they'd managed to scrape together some money to make a sequel to it. I don't know if anyone saw it, if it was any good, but I think that's what drove that, this kind of like small and dedicated fan base that wanted to see it. Mm, I think it was at least partly crowdfunded. I think they had... Was it? Okay. I think they had one of the most successful Kickstarters or GoFundMes, whichever one they ended up using ever to support it and that was again one that like you say kind of came and went in theaters i don't think it did 
as well as the first one did, and the first one was not a big hit by any means. It was very much a home video kind of success. Mm. But like for what it what it was, which was like a long a long delayed sequel in which the cast had basically gone, we want to do this again. The fans are chipping in to help us make it. It probably did what they needed, mm. and is, is probably like like a lot of these kind of maybe indicative of the like like you say like a lot of the broken and lizard guys have gone on to success jace chandrasekhar is a fair is pretty pretty successful and prolific uh, tv director now and they probably could get projects made if it was the right project but it's kind of a lot harder to get a an original comedy or an original kind of film made on any scale nowadays unless you have uh, unless you have some sort of big star or pre-existing ip and i think what you see in a lot of the cases of the 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 sort of movies we discussed you kind of see directors who maybe are on the wane a little bit or they haven't had a hit in a while and they see oh why don't we just go back to the thing that works before that will make a bunch of money because people remember the first independence day in the case of roland emmerich and that will make enough money for me to kind of revitalize my career and kind of push me on to do something else and you know maybe mm. get me a little more cachet in which to make a, a more original idea because in the case of emmerich's case you're like coming off the back of like 10,000 BC and Anonymous and things like that. Movies that just didn't really make much of an impact anywhere. Or mm. in the case of the Farrelly's, you know, they, they had been one of the most successful comedy teams uh, for, for about in the, the 90s and the early 2000s. They'd kind of directed a string of hits all in a row. And then suddenly they just were doing stuff that wasn't connecting at all. And they were like, well... I guess we could just kind of, uh, yeah, after, particularly after that Three Stooges movie they did, which didn't do any business, then they were like, oh, we, we could go back to Harry and Lloyd. Like, people liked that. So let's do Dumb and Dumber, Dumb and Dumberer. And mm. I think that one was kind of like a modest success. And Peter Farrelly has obviously gone on to direct Green Book. So it, it certainly seemed to work to some extent. But like there there are in a lot of these cases you can kind of get the sense of desperation of it off of it like these people mm. aren't necessarily doing it because they really think, feel like this story needs to be continued they're doing it because their career needs to be continued yeah i think i saw an article this week about magruber mm-hmm. a film that everyone talks about well not everyone some people talk about but i've never actually seen based on a Saturday Night Live character, I think. Yep. But like that's that's another film that had some kind of cult success in a kind of home video sense. And the people are clamouring for these, some people are clamouring for a sequel to it. And I think that's going to television. I think something like Clerks, would Clerks 4 or 3 or whatever it is, like that's long been talked about. And, mm. you know, creators with passionate fan bases, small but passionate fan bases will kind of seem to say you know we've got a script it's good everyone wants to do it it's just getting the money together Mm. and clerks seems to fit into that because they always seem to be talking about trying to get the gang back together for that but yeah i mean i think that's those are pretty much the reasons why sequels are long delayed yeah Um, there's also you know the avatar sequels (laughs) you know they are real apparently yeah and in that sense i think 
it's James Cameron wanting to push the envelope beyond what he'd already done. Yeah. And whether or not the delay will adversely affect a film that seems to. If we're talking about losing cultural cachet, hmm. didn't have much anyway, considering it's the most popular movie of all time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that you know that will have totally evaporated by the time it comes out. It's next Christmas or Christmas after next, I think. Uh, yeah, it'll be 2020 because... Uh, this Christmas is episode nine. That's like the big yes. Christmas release, and uh, as as much faith as I'm sure James Cameron has it in himself and in the Avatar sequels, I'm not sure he would want to go up against the final question mark uh, of the Skywalker centered Star Wars movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't have confidence in an Avatar sequel going up against a Star Wars movie. He is definitely a a unique case in the sense mm. that he is someone who just there is no pressure on him other than what he wants to put on himself <laughs> like yeah. he he directed back to back two of the most successful movies of all time two movies that are still probably generating a fair bit of profit you know like uh, i'm just, i'm pretty sure that the titanic will be showing on some tv station somewhere until the the uh, the sun swallows the earth you know that is that sort of movie that is just going to constantly be watched by people and avatar is a theme park so it's got that going for it mm. so I, I love that you said back to back but they were like 13 years apart but they were back to back he didn't do anything in the middle apart from probably wait for the technology to emerge and not write a script mm, and go underwater he went underwater oh, a bunch he did um he did but he he basically is just he he can wait around and be pretty much guaranteed that someone is going to help him make these movies and obviously they are because they're filming 27 of them back to back and they're going to release them every week or whatever his crazy plan is for them. But there is definitely a sense with him that it's not necessarily out of any desperation. It's that, you know, he is fascinated by the world that he has created, which uh, is kind of maybe suggests he's a little self-involved. But, um, I mean, he did de- declare mm. himself the king of the world, semi, uh, only semi-ironically, so that's probably to be expected. But, yeah, he, he just isn't, unlike a lot of these people he's not going back to the well of Avatar because, oh, he needs a hit. It's just like, yeah, I can pretty much do anything I want and this is the thing I want to do. In the same way that, you know, like I said, he did all those underwater expeditions and made, like, IMAX movies about going down and and visiting the, the creatures of the deep weather. Like, that's just the thing he likes to do with his time. Hmm, Yeah. Is there a case to say that some sequels are delayed because they're kind of waiting for the people who enjoyed them to be old enough to take their kids to them? So, for instance, the, you know, the long gestating Ghostbusters sequel, mm-hmm. um, which eventually turned into a remake, which eventually wasn't very good. I think, I mean, that maybe partly is the case for it, but I think it's also, I mean, there it literally was just Bill Murray being like, yeah, I don't want to do this. And mm. uh, maybe Dan Aykroyd realising, oh yeah, like he's the character that everyone likes and he's kind of the comedic engine that kind of works the best in those previous movies. And so that's that That to me feels like the main obstacle there is like there was, a, there was one crucial element of those movies that just fundamentally didn't want to be involved with them unless, as, as often was mooted, they were going to kill him off in the first scene. 
mm. which uh, I always thought would have been funny. <laughs> that would have been a really uh, funny way of doing it. But yeah, that, I think that was the thing that held it up for, for such a long time. And then uh, Ackroyd seemed to accept that they weren't going to be able to do another one with the original cast. And so they let them kind of do the the, the, the remake, the, the Paul Feig version. And now maybe they seem to have not accepted that or you know, depending on how that Reitman movie, uh, the Jason Reitman rather movie ends up. Mm, yeah. There's also the fairly cynical argument to make about delayed sequels in the film studios will flog any old shit mm. and they'll just do it as much as they can and just hope that the time is right for it to catch on. Yeah. I think you can really see that in something like Tron Legacy, where, mm. I mean, the original Tron is is reasonably well regarded for its technical achievements. Mm. I think there was always this sense that the movie was, the original movie was very poorly marketed. Like it mm-hmm. was, it came out at a time in Disney's history where the people in charge of the company did not believe in advertising <laughs> like they didn't believe that you should spend money to advertise a film they they still believed in the power of word of mouth so they basically did nothing to push that movie forward and say hey come and watch the state-of-the-art graphics and explore the world of a computer they just kind of let it die uh on the vine which uh is kind of strange to think of the time uh in retrospect and even at the time probably would seem like a weird choice to make for a movie that was pretty expensive but in the case of the sequel, there was definitely a sense of, you know, that movie has now developed this bigger, uh, this kind of bigger reputation. Uh, the technology has advanced a great deal. We can take that world and really kind of build upon it and we can really push the envelope. And, and I also think it came at a a short but kind of crucial window before Disney went all in on superheroes because they had only just purchase marvel but they hadn't started putting out the marvel movies so Mm. i think they were scrambling to try and find something that they can build into their next live action hit because the pirates sequels were in production at that point or or were in some pre-production but they hadn't put out a new pirates movie in a while the national treasure series had been successful for two movies and then weirdly just they didn't make any more of them, which is strange for Disney when you think that they will usually take something that works and just keep going at it. But but like that seemed like the impetus there was they were thinking, what do we have that we can kind of, that people know that we can then build upon? And in that case, it was this old movie that uh, an older generation have affection for. Maybe if we get the right people involved and really kind of push the boat out in terms of the visuals and the technology, we can do something really special. And uh, I went to a presentation a, of Disney films in late 2010 before it came out, and they showed us like 30 minutes of Tron Legacy uh, with the 3D and everything. And that was very, very cool, and it did look great. But there was like this, there was a great sense. Uh, to me, and I think some of the other people there are like, why does this exist? Like, mm. this doesn't feel like... This feels like something for a relatively small number of people, which is like the people who are real hardcore Tron heads, uh, as I'm sure they refer to themselves. Mm-hmm. And there there really didn't seem to be a huge amount 
behind them making it. it it really did seem to be and i mean that film ended up doing like reasonably well but it was very expensive which is why they haven't done another one uh there, there was definitely a sense of well we'll just kind of we've got a lot we've got very deep pockets at disney we'll just try anything and mm. uh you ended up with that you ended up with like the lone ranger there was a lot of there's a lot of kind of like flailing around before they realized oh no superheroes that's that's the thing i forgot the the lone ranger was a thing mm. I most, saw people, that most people have it's oh, got yeah. a it's good good start and ending yeah long True. middle <laughs> yeah it's weird though that sequels are often delayed or that there wouldn't be you know in any way a desire to delay them for any reason and this is aimed squarely at james cameron and avatar mm. in that like a sequel kind of really relies on you having a familiarity with the characters and the, the world and you know the things and I mean, people can't remember the name of the Sam Worthington character or what he was about in Avatar 1. Is 10 years later, you know, people... Is is the character so bland that it doesn't matter? Uh, possibly. It also... I think it's been suggested that maybe the second one will be maybe a prequel. And that okay. it's, it may be the story that each of the different movies will investigate some different aspect of pandora and the navi lore and things like that basically it sounds like uh james cameron has a lot of interest in exploring a world that maybe people in general aren't that interested in exploring except for you know the, the people who always talked about how they became incredibly depressed they couldn't go back to pandora but that's mm-hmm. neither here nor there it, it does feel as if he is he's just decided that he's going to be all in on this stuff and it will be i'm i'm never going to doubt james cameron because obviously his track record for success is uh is is strong uh even in, in just in terms of avatar but it does feel incredibly strange that that is what he has decided to more or less devote his entire life to at this point because i mean he's getting on in years he's not uh he seems to be in reasonably good health but even so you can't imagine that after he's made four sequels that he'll have a huge amount of time left on earth in which to kind of pursue a bunch of projects. Mm. Yeah. This is, this could be his magnum opus, I guess, because it's mm. been so long that, yeah. And like you say, he, he does take quite a long time doing things. He's, you know, surely, I mean, unless that's what he's doing, he's investing in technology to stay alive forever. <laughs> we can't, we can't rule that out. You laugh, but you know, he could, that's what he could be doing. Yeah, like we those movies are all very expensive. You don't know how much of it is just in unspecified R and D. Yeah, just like all these, like kind of, he's gonna live his life as like a hologram that like directs Avatar sequels that no one wants. <laughs> yeah, just he's uploaded his own consciousness to. Uh, oh no, like that's maybe the whole thing is he has been developing the technology to swap his body into a Navi, and what you will see is Avatar Five will be directed by a 12 foot four blue james cameron what the fuck have we uncovered here i feel (laughs) i feel like this is a better idea for avatar sequels than the avatar sequels will end up being Mm, yeah there'll be a after the final one is released in theaters they'll then like drop a documentary online for everyone to see and then it's like this was my plan all along and now i am your god (laughs) yeah absolutely the the last thing uh I'll say on uh, on this in terms of, you know, we talked about people 
maybe pursuing these kind of long delay sequels out of maybe a sense of desperation, which I think you see in the case of the Independence Day sequel. And maybe desperation is the wrong word, but I think uh, something driving like the Brad Bird deciding to do Incredibles 2 would have been the relative failure of Tomorrowland, maybe making him think, or finding Dory, you know, Andrew Stanton after uh, John Carter, of maybe someone being like, uh, I need to, to go and lick my wounds a little bit and return to mm-hmm. something familiar. I think one of the exceptions to the rule in terms of, and, and we mentioned it a few times, but one of the exceptions to the rule of someone returning to a piece of work seemingly just because they were like, yeah, this is a pre-existing property and I'm going to go nuts with it, is George Miller with Mad Max Fury Road. Mm. But but like that does really feel as if he has gone in with them and he, he he's not just doing like, yes, everyone knows Mad Max. It's a kind of a well-known property. I'll do it so that, you know, you can fund some of the passion project I want to make. Like, that does feel as if he has gone, no, this is actually the passion project I want to make. I want to make a Mad Max sequel with all of the technology that we have now and i want to just go i want to take all of these ideas that have been percolating for the 30 years since the last one came out and i'm just gonna really run with it and uh, i I think that's that's maybe the kind of exception that proves the rule in terms of like someone returning to their own art and even if it does come maybe from a sense of like well i haven't made a movie from a while and this is a movie that they'll let me make of someone really just taking the money and the time that they're given and really doing something spectacular with it so we end this episode as we end all our episodes with shot reverse shot recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well matt what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week i'm going to recommend something that i called an audible on last time i was on uh, and changed my mind to recommend the richard e grant memoir but i'm going to recommend the uh, aforementioned Jason Reitman's last film, Tully, mm. um, a film in which he has reteamed with both Charlie Theron and Diablo Cody to tell the story of a woman played by Charlie Theron who is very much struggling with the uh, in the aftermath of the birth of her third child. Now, I feel a little bit like Jason Reitman and Charlie Theron and Diablo Cody are kind of making the filmic equivalent of the John Updike rabbit novels, mm-hmm. uh, revisiting someone at three year, three kind of stages of their life, albeit with differently named characters. Um, and I think that if that's the case, I am definitely on board for chapter three because with Young Adult and now Tully, they've you know pulled off a pretty decent trick and repeating it twice. It is an excellent film, um, anchored by an incredible performance by Charlie Theron and also excellent support work uh, from people like Ron Livingston and, oh, Jesus Christ, I forgot her name. I get confused. The name is very similar to the woman who plays Dawn in The Office, but it's not her. She's in Blade Runner 2049. Mackenzie... Oh, Mackenzie Davis? That's it. It's the the exact mishmash of Mackenzie Crook and Lucy Davis, <laughs> who are both in the office, and that's why I get them confused. Um, yeah, Mackenzie Davis and Mark Duplass and Ron Livingston, yes, they're kind of all in it. It's uh, an excellent film. Uh, if you're in the UK, it's available on Now TV. And uh, yes, it is one of those films that, you know, could be really hand-wringing and kind of hackneyed, but actually is really affecting and also kind of funny and powerful and kind of, you know, doesn't go where you'd kind of expect it. Um, and for that reason, I will heartily recommend that film. If I think I'd have seen it last year, it definitely would have made my kind of end of year list. Um, but alas, I slept on that, uh, which I shouldn't have done, given how much I like the uh, the previous work of those guys. 
Um, but yes, that's it. Tully is my recommendation. Cool. I'm going to recommend a movie that came out a couple of years ago called Happy Death Day, which I'd been meaning to see for a while because when it came out, everyone said, oh, this is a really funny, clever uh, kind of horror comedy, and I just uh, never got around to it. But I saw the trailer for the sequel, which is coming out, uh, I think, this week in the US, called Happy Death Day to You, which is uh, pretty good uh, as far as titles go. And I thought, oh, that looks like a lot of fun. I'm going to watch the original. And it is tremendously enjoyable it's a kind of spin on groundhog day which they uh, acknowledge in the film which i don't think they needed to do like well, there's the two characters talking about whether or not one of them has seen groundhog day and it's like uh, you didn't need to we were all thinking it you didn't need to vocalize the fact that this movie is very similar to groundhog day in some ways but the twist is that uh, the main character played by jessica rofe is repeating the same day because at the end of each day or partway through each day uh, she is murdered by a mysterious slasher who kind of keeps following her around and killing her. And every time that she dies, she wakes up at the start of the same day and kind of has to go through it all again until she can break out of uh, the loop. And the movie starts off as a more or less straightforward horror movie, which it's very effective at. It kind of gets some nice jump scares, but it really comes into its own once the the rough character, Teresa, known as Tree, figures out, oh... I'm actually reliving the same day every uh, over and over again. I need to figure out who is trying to kill me and, you know, stop them. And that's when the movie kind of kicks into this different gear of dark comedy as she is going around trying to figure out who she could possibly have wronged who would want to take out such kind of terrible vengeance against her and just starts to die in more elaborate and fun and strange ways. And it does, because it's only like PG-13, but it does a really good job of suggesting that it's more violent than it actually is. Because obviously when she dies, the film always hard cuts to the start of the day again. So uh, even though there's a lot of deaths in it, there's surprisingly little blood, but there's still quite a lot of tension. It does a really good job of balancing the humour and the tension. And I just think that Jessica Roth really does come across as something of a, a real star from it you know it's a real kind of star making turn and i'm really excited to see what she does in the sequel which looks to be uh turning into the comedic stuff even harder than the first one mm. i too saw the trailer they ran it before will you ever forgive me mm-hmm. um and it did look like a, a whole lot of fun and because i'd kind of almost dismissed the first one kind of just thinking it was a, a kind of just another horror film, Ed, and I really shouldn't do that. You should not judge a book by its cover, or unless it's um, a Lee Child book. <laughs> In which case, you can probably guess what you're guessing. Yeah, just throw it into the sun. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, and Acast, where you can hear us now. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different, but until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.